Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to Censored. I'm Aoife Vrtnach, a historian with a passion for dirty stories. If you're a new listener, hello and welcome to Season 7. There are loads of back episodes to catch up on where I read the dirtiest of books with the filthiest of minds. In this season, I'm mixing it up a little bit, moving beyond the censor's blacklist into the world of social censure. The Irish government had formal censorship of publications from 1929, but I don't want you to think that art without consequences existed before that year or that formal censorship is the only restraint that people face when they say unpalatable things out loud. There are lots of ways expression is controlled by society. I've already covered loud, violent protest in the Playboy episode. This time, I'm talking about another form of popular protest, the boycott. One Irish novel, The Valley of Squinting Windows, was at the centre of a boycott. In 1918, a thousand copies of Brinsley McNamara's debut novel were published in Dublin. Reviews were not too kind. Many found it grim and unrelentingly harsh. The characters were all horrible and the tragic ending was too obvious, according to critics. McNamara was the pen name of John Weldon, and in this episode I'm going to use his pen name so we don't get mixed up with his other family members. He lived with his eight siblings and parents in a small town in Delvin, County Westmeath. There, the novel provoked a violent altercation, a book burning and a boycott that lasted for seven years. Yes, seven long years, from 1918 to 1925. Some people have explicitly compared the Delvin boycott to the Playboy riots, which I did cover in the earlier episodes. You might remember that the audience in the Abbey cried, that's not the Western way, disowning the play from its cultural setting. In Delvin, the problem was that the locals believed they were all too recognisable, even if those depictions were grossly magnified and distorted. In fact, they did consider taking a libel case against the author. But maybe because they didn't take legal action, the people of Delvin turned to a tried and tested remedy boycotting. But more on that later. 
First, let's see how offensive the book is. If you need refreshments to go with the book, there's lots of inspiration in the pages of the novel. A lot of characters drink a lot in The Valley of Squinting Windows. I think my favourite episode is when the local men have to persuade the constabulary and the publicans that they are a genuine traveller so that they can get served on a Sunday. Ireland had some pretty baroque licensing laws back then. So the men end up drinking stout out of a pail outdoors. It's like bushing or takeaway pints. Fair warning, though, if you do drink and read at the same time, you could end up enraged or weeping because it's not a cheery novel, and the boycott story is pretty grim as well. I don't know if many people in Ireland read this book anymore, but everyone knows its title. If you say The Valley of the Squinting Windows, you are talking about social surveillance, where people spy on each other. It's a phrase that conveys claustrophobia and fear, tinged with paranoia, which is pretty much the atmosphere of the novel. The small Midlands town of Garadrimna is heavy with secrets and resentments, and its characters plot and scheme against each other. There isn't one likeable character. It's a parade of bitter, cruel people who, I suspect, wouldn't give you the steam off their piss. If the people of Delvin believed the novel was set in their town, it's not surprising they took offence. This is one of the most depressing visions of small-town rural Ireland I've ever read. Honestly, I couldn't recommend it to you because it's miserable. To add insult to injury, it's just not very good. I do love darkness when it's done well, like in, say, Mr. Weston's Good Wine, which I have read for the podcast already. That was pretty grim, but it was textured, layered and interesting. Because McNamara decided to renounce ambiguity, this novel is not so satisfying. And his unsubtle approach meant local readers could see themselves really easily in the text. The very form of his novel was potentially provocative. But that's about locals taking offence. In general, could I say that the novel contained offensive material like smut or scandal or crime? Was it a daring, dangerous book? To a certain extent, it was, because the plot revolves around crisis pregnancies outside marriage. You might be surprised by that, because we like to believe no one in Catholic Ireland ever talked about this, preferring to lock women up in institutions to make the so-called problem go away. And there was a great silence constructed around single motherhood, Publications mentioning it were ruthlessly banned by the censors after 1930. Yet here is a novel whose entire premise is single motherhood. And it's worth noting it was never banned under the censorship laws either. Briefly then, this is the plot. Nan Brennan is a self-sacrificing, pious Irish mammy with grand ambitions for her only son John who is studying to be a priest. Nan has a terrible secret. She had a baby outside marriage whose existence she concealed from her husband. Except it isn't a secret, because lots of people in her town know about it. Her husband is told the secret by a man in the pub, and a local beggar woman regularly blackmails Nan into giving her money by threatening her to tell her son John the whole story. Nan overdoes public piety to compensate for her sinful past, 
but she knows that everyone knows what she did. The impossibility of having secrets, or even privacy, is at the heart of the novel. It's an interesting dynamic to explore, how small communities might know, but don't talk about certain aspects of their lives, meaning they can claim plausible deniability. The whole plot is quite twisty, so I won't summarise it because you'll be bored. But just remember, it's a single mother seduction drama played out across more than one generation. One of the more scandalous aspects of the novel, though, is its profound hostility towards the Catholic Church and its priests. Brinsley McNamara really hates church-going and the clergy. No character has a genuine religious bone in their body. No one experiences wonder or beauty through Catholicism. The women who attend every religious service are accused of degrading the mysteries and showing off their souls. And this is a quote from the novel from page 18, just to give you an example of the venom McNamara has towards church-going. On a Sunday morning, the procession they formed was like a flock of human crows, and the noise they made was a continual caw of calumny. The one presently absent was set down as the sinner. They were eternally the Pharisees and she the publican. Well, that's pretty vicious. The author makes clear that Nan wants her son to be a priest because it will raise her social standing and make her rich. The local parish priest, Father O'Keefe, hunts to hounds, wears fine boots and carries a whip. In a novel set in England, this kind of character would be the local squire. He earns his money by farming and dealing cattle with the help of various men in the village. He also cheats at cards. I mean, surely this is the worst accusation of all. Although he also flirts with the ladies in the drapery shop, another terrible slur on a priest's reputation. McNamara contrasts O'Keefe with another priest, Father Considine, who teaches at a nearby school. He is genuinely pious, kind and humble, and precisely not the priest Nan wants her son to be. So for readers who believed in the moral superiority of Irish Catholicism, this novel would be pretty shocking. I decided to run it through censorship bingo just to double check how rude it might appear. So the bingo squares I checked off were firstly sex work. Nan is haunted by images of sex workers on Dublin streets, which she compares to herself because of course she considers herself a fallen woman. And then there was politics. I think here the comparison with Singh is instructive. People expected Irish authors to write about the goodness and inherent brilliance of Ireland at this point, rather than pointing out that there might be flaws. So writing a critical account of small-town Ireland is a political statement in and of itself. The next square I ticked off was crime. I mean, there's a murder in it and there's a supposed infanticide. And then, of course, there's extramarital pregnancy, which is referred to as a misfortune or a shame in the text. I think it's interesting that in the Irish idiom Brinsley McNamara uses to write in, that people talk about pregnancy in elusive terms rather than transparent language. And then the last square I got, I decided to tick, was blasphemy. I mean, technically, he's not rude about God, but being critical of the Catholic Church is serious enough at this point. For fervent Irish Catholics of the time, it's considered the same thing. 
the church is seen as above criticism. So the Valley of Squinting Windows only scored 5 out of 25, which is pretty low, but similar to the scores of a lot of novels that were banned in the first 10 years of the censorship. But my bingo card wasn't really what bothered the people of Delvin. They thought they were being mocked in public. They protested vigorously and drew so much attention to the protest that the publisher withdrew the title. Until a new paperback edition was published in 1964, there were very few copies of The Valley of Squinting Windows in circulation. Delvin's protest was almost as effective as censorship in suppressing the novel. But what exactly did they do, and why was it so effective? The trouble in Delvin started on the 28th of May 1918 with public readings of the book. Not by the author now, but by locals. I know, you're thinking, what? They read it out loud to each other. This is such a foreign concept to us now that we need to pause here and consider social reading practices. This is 1918, when literacy was not so extensive or embedded as it is now. Older people often had lower literacy levels than their young grandchildren. So one person reading out loud for the edification of others was not uncommon. It seems that the people of Delvin decided to read the novel in public because to have a local author was such a big deal in a small town. There are two stories of public readings, one by women on the steps of the town's ruined castle and another by men in a public bar. It's striking to me how these recollections recreate gendered spaces in the town. Both stories recount how the reader is enjoying him and herself playing up to an appreciative crowd until they recognise themselves in one of the vicious pen portraits that populate the novel. This is the scene from the castle steps, where women, and presumably children, are listening to the local postmistress read The Valley of Squinting Windows. Bursts of laughter punctuated the reading, as one or another called out, That's N to a T, or There's no mistake in who that is. But suddenly the reading stopped at page 48. There was no mistaking to whom this referred. The listeners now looked at the stony face of the reader. The book was closed with a bang. The shocked ladies stood up and almost wordlessly made their way home. Fuck! Can you imagine how this would feel? To see yourself in a satire is bad. But to read out a scurrilous version of yourself to your neighbours on the street? It's just hideous. This woman was personally outraged and publicly humiliated at the same time. Ouch. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The male version of the revelatory moment featured one local publican reading out McNamara's unflattering description of his shop. I'm going to read you out this unflattering description so you can get an idea of what the publican saw and why he might have seen himself in it. There now was the butcher's stall, kept filthily, where she might buy her bit of beef or mutton occasionally. She caught a glimpse of the victualler standing with his dirty wife amid the strong smelling meat. The name above the door was that of the public house immediately beside it. Not a lot of fun seeing yourself described as filthy and stinky and revolting. The publican was so shocked that he actually ordered drinks for everyone in the bar. I mean, I think this indicates that he was deeply disturbed. Publicans never give away free booze. As they drank, the locals set to plotting what they would do next. Later that evening, a crowd of Delvin householders approached the father of the author, James Weldon, on the public street, accusing him of writing the book and generally roughing him up. The author, John, alias Brinsley, who was in the town that night, hid from the mob, eventually fleeing into the countryside. All night, townspeople searched for him, but to no avail. He said of that night, If I had been found that evening, I would have been murdered. They were mostly all wild with liquor and carried various implements of destruction, including revolvers which were freely discharged. McNamara never did suffer any violence at the hand of his neighbours, because they didn't catch him, but the mob vented their fury on his father instead. James Weldon escaped a beating only because the police intervened. The mob then held an indignation meeting where they burnt a copy of The Valley of Squinting Windows in a blazing tar barrel. Indignation meeting, I just love it. What a phrase! So far, this is a typical emotional outburst by a community who felt it was wronged. Too much drink and too much emotion created a menacing mob looking for revenge. It's unlikely anyone would talk about Delvin's reaction to The Valley of Squinting Windows if that's all that had happened. But unfortunately for James Weldon, burning his son's book did not satisfy the ringleaders of the mob. In the next few weeks, a boycott against him gathered strength. Now, a boycott is a terrible and terrifying form of social protest. This is a definition from 1880, when it first emerged as a powerful tool in the land war. This is a definition, a template, 
even an instruction manual that was provided in 1880 by one of the leaders of the land war. If any man is evicted from his holding, let no man take it. If any man is mean enough to take it, don't shoot him, but treat him as a leper. Encircle him with scorn and silence. Let no man or woman talk to him or to his wife or children. If his children appear in the street, don't let your children speak to him. If they do at school, take your children away. If the man comes into the shop, tell the shopkeeper that if he deals with him, you will not trade with him any longer. If the man or his flock go to the church, leave it as they enter. It is a peaceful war, and war has no pity. If even death comes, let the man die unattended, save by the priest, or let him be buried unpitied. Shit. That is chilling. A boycott is social excommunication, complete and total ostracisation. No arena is neutral. Even the church is a site of this so-called peaceful war. Even death cannot free a person from social isolation. Boycotts are also ambitious. They extend to family and associates of the offender who are punished as if they had also done wrong. Children are not innocent. They are also victims and enforcers of exclusion. This is uncompromising, communal punishment of the most terrible kind. It envisages social death, actually. Taken to its logical conclusion, a boycotted person could starve to death on the street and her neighbours would step over her body. As a nation, we take a perverse pride in our invention of boycotting. But of course, we just coined the word, not the practice itself. Since at least the 18th century, the English language used the phrase sent to Coventry to describe social excommunication. I've no idea what's so bad about Coventry, lads. If anyone wants to tell me, please do. To boycott replaced that phrase after Captain Boycott became internationally notorious in 1880. His tenants successfully obstructed him and ignored him, and he left County Mayo to escape the consequences. But even if we didn't invent the social phenomenon of a boycott, we Irish are pretty keen on it. A year after the triumph over Captain Boycott, political leaders warned that many boycotts were being used to settle old scores, to satisfy spleen and spite. Once communities found such an effective weapon, they couldn't resist using it for less than noble ends. It's hard to see the Delvin boycott as anything other than nasty because the target was not the author, the man who offended everyone, but his father, James Weldon. Weldon was a schoolmaster of a local boys' primary school. One of the first effects of the boycott on the Weldon family was in their daily shopping. They were refused service by most of the town's shopkeepers. Tierney, the sole shopkeeper who served them, finally refused them because he was losing all his other customers, because he was being boycotted for serving the victim of a boycott. The Weldons would have had no local food supplies if a friend, Tom Lenehan, hadn't added extra food to his order, which was collected by the family after dark. But when this was found out, Lenehan was punished by being refused grazing on land he leased from boycott leaders. 
When persuasion couldn't convince everyone to join the boycott, threats and punishments followed. James Weldon tried to calm the situation down. He wrote and signed a letter disavowing the book and saying he had nothing to do with writing it. But this was not enough. Weldon was also targeted in his place of work. Parents removed their boys from the school, causing attendance to drop dramatically. Pickets on the road to the school helped enforce this non-attendance. This was an effective economic punishment because teachers at this time were paid according to the numbers who came to school. In 1917, there were an average of 36 on Weldon's roll, but in 1919, it was 17.7. By 1922, the average had fallen to 13.4. This meant that Weldon's salary and pension halved. The Department of Education refused to accept that he was being boycotted. They did not bend the rules in his favour. During the seven-year-long school boycott, from 1918 to 25, the numbers in his school remained extremely low. When he did finally resign in 1925, the numbers suddenly jumped to 40. Locals, including the priest, swore blind that any fall in school attendance was just a coincidence and that they had nothing to do with it. Yeah, right. Pure coincidence. Of course, they had to say this because a boycott was defined in law as an illegal conspiracy to obstruct and intimidate. In 1923, James Weldon sued a number of his neighbours for damages caused by their boycotting. However, he lost the case because the jury couldn't agree on a verdict. One of the accused did get some money. He was awarded costs of £90 by the court. In one of the greatest ironies of all time, this man, who had insisted there was no organised boycott, gave the money to a Delvin committee that used it to offset the expenses of everybody else. Yet another coincidence. So what were the effects of this Delvin boycott? James Weldon clearly suffered, but his other son weathered it well. He wrote plays for the Abbey, became a bohemian about town in literary Dublin, and from 1925 to 1960 was the registrar of the National Gallery. Unfortunately, he couldn't benefit from increased sales generated by the controversy because his publisher withdrew the small print run and never reprinted it. But I'm sure the boycott was personally difficult. He lobbied hard to get his father's salary changed and he also helped his dad organise the court case in 1923. The town of Delvin did suffer from the boycott too. There was the bitterness and disagreement that it provoked but also they gained an unwelcome notoriety. People from neighbouring villages cycled there on a Sunday to see the place for themselves, hoping to observe a public squabble between pro- and anti-boycott camps. That there were two camps summarises the difficulty with boycotting. It's an expression of communal disapproval that relies on unanimity to be successful. Social ostracism only works if everyone joins in. But what if not everyone is of the one mind? Intimidation must then replace persuasion. In fact, threats are vital to boycotting as practised in Ireland. What boycotting needs is absolute agreement, but maintaining a united front has always involved social, economic and cultural manipulation. 
When I look at the Delvin boycott, I see a very angry town, desperate to find an outlet for its rage, searching for a punishment to ease their outraged feelings. They couldn't force McNamara to unwrite the novel. They themselves could not unread it, so this boycott had no reforming intent. It was purely punitive. And I think this sort of boycott reveals a lot about how censure worked in Ireland. The object of punishment was the author's family, not the writer, because in the Delvin imagination the Weldons were all the one. Their reputation was familial, not individual. Hence, the whole family suffered serious consequences as a result of one individual's choice. The town refused to believe that James Weldon had nothing to do with the book. They couldn't imagine a world where adult children could be treated as emancipated people. Fascinating, really. Just as families were conceived as single entities, a boycott imagines a world of communal unity that hardly ever exists. There have been lots of unedifying boycotts since Delvin, and many of them have centred on schools. I really don't know why schools are so contentious in small-town Ireland. No one has written on the school boycott as a phenomenon. Sometimes it's easy to see the reasons behind them. There are labour disputes or personality clashes. But the local priest is often important, because priests were managers of schools. Still are in many schools, but let's leave present-day Ireland out of it for the moment. In Delvin, the local priest tried to fire James Weldon, ignoring procedures about notice, appeals, etc. So it's clear that Weldon did not enjoy the cleric's support. For teachers, offending Catholic priests could have serious repercussions. And it wasn't only teachers. The Feathered on Sea boycott of 1957 was instigated by a local priest when he was thwarted by an ordinary farming family. Feathered is a good example of a boycott gone rogue. When a wife left her husband, taking her children with her, the entire community passed judgment on their personal circumstances. This was because it was a so-called mixed marriage between a Catholic man and a Church of Ireland woman. Their separation was supposedly precipitated by a disagreement over which church the children would be raised in. Under the rules of the Roman Catholic Church, the children were supposed to have been raised in that denomination. It was also rumoured her Church of Ireland neighbours helped the woman to leave her husband. A boycott was initiated by the Catholic priest, supported by his bishop, against the Church of Ireland businesses in the area. Naturally, This boycott made the international news, because it sounds like a story from 1557, not 1957. In the end, the couple reconciled, and I don't care what church their children attended, because seriously, it's none of my fucking business. Taken together, the Delvin and Feathered boycotts show just how tight the communal restraints on families could be. Censure helped to control people's behaviour in small town and rural Ireland. Brinsley McNamara's literary career wasn't ruined by his neighbours, but the effect on his family would scare anyone watching. Writers often criticise the chilling effect government censorship has on their work. But surely social censure is just as pernicious. We will never know how many Irish people stopped themselves from writing for fear of offending the neighbours. I suspect lots of people kept their mouths shut and their pens dry. 
I don't blame them either. The risks of speaking up were extremely high. Well, that was a bit grim. I do hope the next episode will be a bit lighter. It will be about Holy Joes and their attempts to control smutty magazines and evil literature. In formal academic language, these people are called Catholic actionists, but I prefer the term Yahoo laity. Thanks to Padre O'Donnell for that unforgettable description. These lads and lassies were fond of confiscating newspapers and burning them to make a point. There's nothing like a good bonfire to warm a pure-minded soul. But I hope you won't follow their example. I'm expecting all of ye to keep your hands clean and your minds filthy.